None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free, who falsely believe they have embraced the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 216 of Embrace the Void, where we let freedom go straight to voicemail. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are discussing everyone's favorite political football, so let's make with liberation. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My returning guest this week is Toby Buckle, host of the Political Philosophy Podcast and editor of the new book, What is Freedom? Toby, would you like to once again say hi to the void? Yeah, man. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, thanks for coming back on. It's been a hot minute. You were last on when we uh, were transitioning to the new format. So I think it was episode actually 97. And we chatted quite a bit about uh, domination and humiliation, which Mm -hmm. uh, was a lot of fun. And I think what we're going to be chatting about today is going to be a bit of a continuation um, on that topic. So I guess let's just dive right in here. Um, why write a book about freedom rather than about domination or humiliation? I mean, as I think you alluded to, I see them as related. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the work I've done on humiliation, I think humiliation is sort of a symptom of us not being free in a sense. Um, I think... The book I've just put together as editor on freedom Mm -hmm. is much more like, here's a range of ways of thinking about it to get you started. Because I do think, although this is changing a bit, and it is changing particularly sort of within the popular discourse, that we're talking about freedom a bit more. I think generally in political philosophy, we've talked about freedom a lot less than something like justice or rights or equality and when we have talked about it as is common with academia we've talked about it from the very sort of narrow view of what's been said about it within political philosophy so you know berlin's two concepts of liberty and the various work that follows that what i've tried to do is say here's just a range of ways to get you thinking Mm -hmm. to just almost get you started and to introduce you to the number of different perspectives that people bring to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So this book is a volume that brings together historians, uh, philosophers, and activists, all of whom work in different areas, have different specialisations, and sort of bring not just different knowledge, but different life experiences to the table. And it's a really fascinating study, both in 
divergences, but also in similarities in how people from completely different backgrounds, working within completely different methodologies, so to speak, when they mm. think about what freedom is, do tend to get drawn back to the same central questions. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is just a this is a book that if you you really haven't thought about freedom in a sustained way at all, should be a fun, accessible way of really getting like not everything everyone's ever thought about it, but like a real wide ranging spectrum of sort of what's out there. That was my goal with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really like the format. It's for folks who are not familiar. It's a sort of dialogic kind of format where you have each chapter is kind of a chat. Um, some of them are, I think, gleaned from episodes of your podcast. Other ones are separate, but they're all, I think, very accessible. And as you say, they kind of give this impression of a bit of a convergent evolution feel where you know, all of these different fields are getting sort of locked up by similar kinds of issues and are bringing different. And this is something that I've seen in the education world as well, going from philosophy that like they're dealing with a lot of similar problems. They don't always call them the same thing or use the same hmm. terminology, but they come together um, in lots of interesting ways. So I want to talk about the specific um, chapters a bunch, but first sort of broadly speaking, you know, what, if anything, can we say about this essentially contestable concept of freedom. Yeah, so you you hit on essential contestability, which is just at its simplest the idea that words mean different things to different mm -hmm. people. They sometimes mean different things to the same person. And there's not a final answer. There's not a final definition. And there's never going to be. There's better and worse definitions. But to take the concrete case with freedom, what is freedom? You know, Mm -hmm. I can give you an answer in a sentence, it's just not a very interesting sentence, which is, mm -hmm. freedom is a social and political value that has existed substantively for around two, two and a half thousand years, um, and it's been evoked to justify a wide variety of political causes over the years. It's changed mm -hmm. over time, and it's been contested within specific time periods. So that that's what freedom is, that's just not super interesting mm -hmm. right, right. um right. so, so a, a, thing, more... a thing that people have argued about <laughs> it's a thing that people have people have had ideas about yeah um <laughs> mm -hmm. what sets freedom apart from other ideas that you might make like the foundation stone of your political theory so i mentioned justice you could also talk mm -hmm. about equality welfare rights right um, nothing really. These are all big overarching values that can mean, do mean all sorts of different things. Freedom perhaps has a slightly different tenor, a slightly different um, set of associations with it. Some mm -hmm. people may want to make freedom all about individuality and non-constraint, and that certainly is an important meaning of freedom, but it's not the only one. I think freedom, what, what makes people a bit skeptical of it and sometimes even a bit scared of it is what attracts me to it which is mm -hmm. even by the standards of these big political theories that mean all sorts of different things it seems unusually hard to pin down if you're doing justice you at least have formulations like Rawls's two principles or you know Nozak doing justice in transfer or something freedom it really can just seem like you're you're grabbing at smoke and I think mm -hmm. there's there's two things that seem to be common to freedom. 
that, that make it so hard to get a handle on, which is first, it's not only a concept which exists in some sort of ideal realm. It is a lived, felt experience. You feel free. To, the idea of being liberated is, I think, quite a bit thicker than just mm-hmm. certain political institutional conditions being met. And the other is, I think, more than other political concepts, which can be a bit formalised, freedom, much more obviously, in all of its manifestations, relates to the operation of power. Mm-hmm. Um and power is another concept which is sort of ineliminatable and, you know, we, we can't do without it in a sense, but it's also an absolute bugger to define. Um, right. So freedom freedom can be really challenging to even know where to start thinking about it, essentially, which is why I find it interesting. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that there is this kind of subjective element to the concept, though... I'm not sure I wouldn't necessarily also say that there is a subjective element to justice or things like that. Whether I have a lived experience of feeling like I've been treated justly seems like a a meaningful question here as well. I'm curious there, though, you said sort of the relation to power. What do you Hmm. see as the relationship between freedom and power? Is freedom, is the subjective lived experience of freedom just, I feel like I have enough power to do what I want or... That's one meaning of freedom, and we really, in our Newtonian, individualist, you know, bourgeoisie age, we Mm -hmm. really fight this as a meaning of freedom. We much prefer to put it as the double negative of freedom is being protected from power. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is, throughout its entire history, a substantive meaning which simply says freedom is having power. Hmm. Either having power as an individual, having power as a group. When people talk about the liberation of the working class, they're talking about it gaining power, essentially, Mm -hmm. right? When Mm -hmm. you talk about black liberation, that can, or gay liberation, that can be used almost synonymously with empowerment, right? And people do use. That and same thing with people who use, you know, arguments for gun rights based on protecting yourself against an authoritarian government, right? They see freedom as, I mean, they would say that, like, uh, power power in your hands is the other side of the coin from, like, too much power in someone else's hands, right? These are, these yeah. are connected things in this way. And I'll, I'll put my own opinion on the table, which is, while I don't think having gun rights is the best way to express it, in mm-hmm. my personal view... Um, I'm much more, I'm much more willing than perhaps most contemporary liberals to just say freedom involves having power. It's not about putting restraints on power. Well, it is also about putting restraints on power used against you, but mm-hmm. it is about having some sort of minimal securities, economic status, um, mm-hmm. sort of social status that you can use to protect yourself against power. I mm-hmm. think that's right. That's not how everyone thinks about it. So what I'd say more more generally is what tends to what different ideas of freedom tend to have in common is they tend to be ways of thinking through how power should be structured. And people mm-hmm. you're not going to come to a single formulation that's all of them. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's about putting like a line between you and power. Sometimes it's about saying there's like no one who has 
unaccountable power over you. Sometimes it is about being powerful. Sometimes it's about being collectively powerful in the case of, say, democratic conceptions of freedom. Mm-hmm. But almost all ideas of freedom um, tend to be grappling with the question of power in some way, although they reach very different answers. I think this actually relates in interesting ways to a conversation I just had with John Cook, who wrote The Conspiracy Handbook. Um, And one of his big diagnoses is that, um, or their big diagnoses, is that conspiracism is tied to a lack of empowerment. And that one Mm. big way to help people deal with conspiracism or avoid conspiracism is to help them to feel empowered. And I think when you think about sort of a lot of conspiracism as being sort of dealing with a lack of felt freedom, right? Feeling like who's mm. oppressing me? I need to go find out who it is that's taking away my sense of freedom. I think there's, there's a very sort of deep and meaningful connection there. I'm skeptical of that, but I'm just not mm-hmm. an expert enough on um, the it's certainly a debate in hypothesis. Yeah, for sure. Theories to really wade in on that. Mm-hmm. I'd almost separate it out. Most people in contemporary Western societies don't feel free. If you just, people have done this polling, if you just ask the question, it's only like 20, 30% of people will feel free. Mm-hmm. Now, what they have in their head when they answer that question is probably all over the shop, but that's just an right. interesting data point to start with. And so of those who don't feel free, certainly some number will be conspiracists, and mm-hmm. it's not unconnected. Um, I'm not going to wade in on that one. I, I'd be a bit more dubious about drawing a direct causal arrow. yeah i think it's i think it's better to think of it more like this is a comorbidity for conspiracism or something like that right this is is increases your a sense of disempowerment can increase the likelihood that you will slide in a direction but is not sufficient in itself or else as you say and and like we can debate how many people are actually conspiracists there are also people like uh aronovich who push back on the empowerment thesis and say that like it's actually doesn't make sense to describe all conspiracists as feeling disempowered given the positions anyway as you say you don't want to leave on that yeah anecdotally when i've encountered conspiracy theorists i just don't get the feeling that's where they're coming from emotionally it's more sort of status anxiety inferiority complex um, so it's interesting to think about how, how status has to do with power. It is, and status is a form of power. So, you know, I'm just going to draw a line under that and say that's not... I, I my, my first pass is I'm skeptical of that thesis, mm-hmm. but... No worries. Y- I could have my views changed by by reading some more books on it or mm-hmm. something, you know? I guess I just think, broadly speaking, it's interesting that we have a lot of these current cultural problems that I think are tied around a lack of sense of either meaning or freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like, it's interesting, the, the, the statistic that you note, I think corroborates the idea that like our felt sense of freedom probably isn't very well tracking our actual reality, because I think we would probably argue that broadly speaking, people living in, you know, the quote unquote Western world are relatively fairly free. Um, mm. So let me ask you this, and then we'll get into specific chapters. Do you make any distinction in your mind between the concepts of freedom and liberty? No. Um, okay. Usually in the synonymous. You, you, if I'm writing a piece, um, well, if I'm writing a piece, I will use one or the other and mm-hmm. just stick with it. But if I'm writing a piece, I will use them synonymously. If I'm reading a piece, I expect the author to tell me whether mm-hmm. or not they're using them synonymously. Mm-hmm. Um now, you can do a historical read, and historically, 
they maybe have slightly different variances um, and get associated with slightly different things. Um, they're, they're also different etymologically. They come from different streams in our history. Um, liberty is from Latin, libertas. Freedom, freedom go, is actually even older. That goes all the way back to the earliest roots of the Indo-European language. Mm-hmm. Um where it's defined in both cases it's defined in contrast to slavery but in different mm. ways um so they're different they're, they're different etymologically they're somewhat different historically but if i'm writing something today um then i don't see the utility in trying to carve out two different concepts there so if i'm writing today i, I use them synonymously and i tell the reader i'm using them synonymously Okay. And that bit about slavery is actually a perfect little uh, segue for us to get into the first chapter of the book, which is uh, you talking to Orlando Patterson, who is one of my favorite Mm -hmm. people to listen to on this issue. His episodes of your podcast are quite excellent. I re-listened to them recently Mm -hmm. when I was doing, um, when I was using some Patterson stuff in a paper of my own. Um, And specifically, you know, he's well known for his concept of social death, which Mm -hmm. I do think, whether it's explicitly called out, often pervades a lot of art and thinking and philosophy these yeah. days. Do you want to maybe start a bit by sort of explaining what Patterson means by social death and and, and, and like also his approach to analyzing it, which I think is uniquely interesting? Yeah, so stop me if this isn't what you have in mind. There's two really big works by Orlando Patterson, and it mm-hmm. makes sense to read them in order. Mm-hmm. Um, Slavery and Social Death, which came first, and then Freedom in the Making of Western Culture. In Slavery and Social Death, what he's doing, and you can see the genesis of his thought and what led him to think about freedom, because he wasn't, he, he's a sociologist, you know, he's not um, mm-hmm. someone who spent a lot of time in political philosophy really doing this, like, concept chopping. Um, in Slavery and Social Death, it's a very ambitious work, and it's a huge survey of basically every, not every, but, like, so many of the different instances across history and across all the different continents of how slavery has existed as an institution. Mm-hmm. And essentially, he comes up with his own definition of it, um, which is summarised as social death, which is in contrast to the typical way of defining slavery, which mm-hmm. is as a property relation with respect to people. So the sort of traditional way of defining slavery is a bit like um, I own this mug, or I own this book, I own this person. The mm-hmm. challenges Patterson makes to that is that it's neither necessary or sufficient. There are times we buy and sell people who are not slaves. So in the modern world, the big example would be sports players are bought and sold by teams. That's perhaps a slightly weird case, but these <laughs> people are not slaves. They, they have actually used that defense in court when challenging some sorts of these things. We could argue but the I, college high school version, or the, the college version yeah. maybe, is a little bit more like actual slavery, but yeah. Yeah, but even even then, and as weird and as bad as that is, yeah. it's not chattel slavery. It's clearly mm-hmm. some different institution. But the more common one would be like a bride price or a dowry. It's pretty mm-hmm. common to buy and sell women in a lot of societies. And certainly those women don't have the social and legal rights of men, but they're also not slaves. The women themselves Mm. would be quite horrified to learn that you'd describe them as slaves. Um, 
there's there's also cases where there's people who are clearly slaves who are not owned. Most forms mm-hmm. of slavery in the in history don't have an economic function to them. Mm-hmm. Um, most slaves in history have existed for ceremonial, honorific, or sexual stroke reproductive purposes. They're not laborers. That's not what they've been used for. And so, in contrast, Patterson defines slavery as a relation of domination. The mm-hmm. most extreme relation of domination in which violence and threat of violence is central, um, and in which the degradation and dishonoring of the slave is central, and in which the slave exists as a genealogical isolate. The mm-hmm. slave has no rights to their children or to their partner. They don't exist in a heritage in the same way that um, a free person would. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I said that the, the, where slavery comes from etymologically, um, in its oldest sense in the Indo-European language, it means to be among the beloved, to be among mm-hmm. those who are loved, those who are honoured, kith, kin, illustrious, mm-hmm. glad, noble, those who are not slaves. It's defined mm-hmm. against that. Those who we do not love, who we do not marry. And so right. if you sum all that up, what do you get to? Something like social death. You have someone who's physically alive, but they don't have any of the social markers that would grant them status as a member of a human community, i.e. someone who exists genealogically embedded within familial relationships. Someone Mm -hmm. who can assert themselves and assert their own honour and protect themselves against dishonouring and protect themselves against violence. All of the normal social markers that we would think of as sort of coming along for the ride when we recognize someone as human don't mm-hmm. exist in the case of the slave the slave mm-hmm. is physically alive but socially dead and that's that might be a bit long but that's that's the summary of the the first of patterson's works yeah and i like this as a concept as sort of a souped up version of what i talk about in my ethics classes as being you know exiled from the moral community right we yeah. have this list of individuals who count as members of the moral community and being you know social death is being excluded from that and as you're saying sort of in a in a very thorough kind of way right we're not just saying we're not going to care about you ethically we're saying you are we're going to deprive you of the features of an entity that we could even begin to hang moral status on or something like Mm. that um yeah in many ways it's the most extreme form practically Mm -hmm. and conceptually of that denial of membership of the moral community Right. And I think um, Sandel in his book, Debt, I want to just shout out, I always have to shout out this book, does a really great job of unpacking Patterson's social death stuff as well. And specifically this idea that um, mere ownership is not a sufficient condition. Um, I want to drill down a little bit, though, on this idea that freedom was invented, which is, I Mm. think, that's something y'all talk about in that discussion. To a lot of people's ears, that sounds, you know, weird, right? Like, Why, how would you invent something that, like you were saying earlier, we all have a subjective experience of all the mm. time, so or lack of, right? So um, what is it, you know, what do you mean when you say freedom was invented and, and like who invented it and how? Yeah, so just as a first pass, I think the idea that something is socially constructed, and I think mm-hmm. you'll agree with me, and I think in fact people who sort of in our political quadrant have spent a long time banging their head against this wall. The fact that something's socially constructed Mm 
mm-hmm. maybe even intentionally designed, doesn't mean that it's not real or that it doesn't have quite profound effects on our lives, both mm-hmm. consciously and subconsciously. A lot of the ideas we have about, say, gender have changed enormously over time about like what counts as a man or a woman, if there's a binary or a spectrum. That's socially constructed to a large degree, but it's real. I have a felt experience of being a man. Mm-hmm. Money money is um, socially constructed. I don't think anyone serious thinks there's anything about currency, which is sort of, there's some actual ontological thing behind it. It's just a convention we've made up. But being mm-hmm. poor or rich are real things, and you really feel them. You know, mm-hmm. So there's nothing spooky about the idea that you could have a very, very strong subjective feeling of something that is a human creation. It's mm-hmm. a bit weird to think about, but no, we do this all the time with everything. But yeah, do, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, do we imagine then, so when we say, you know, when Arlena Patterson says, look, when slavery was becoming this thing in cultures, freedom was invented in contrast to that state of being, which, you know, I understand intuitively, I think, what that means in the sense of like, you know, if there's a group of people over here who are being uh, forced to do whatever people want them to, and you're not that, that gives you a different sense of like mm-hmm. maybe freedom before the, you know, that kind of arrangement was in your proximity. Um, do we think that like people prior to that still had some conception of freedom? It was just sort of nascent and not formalized until the social sort of construction occurs? Um Proviso and then my answer. Proviso is who in Christ knows. Like for sure, I, for sure. I think like trying to like reconstruct the mental states of people who existed separated from you by thousands of years in such different cultures and languages and whatever. You know, you, you're you're in the realm of best guesses here, mm-hmm. right? Here's my best guess. Slavery has been a pretty universal feature throughout all of human history. Not every society has had it. In fact, it's only about 15 to 20 percent, but it's been there, it's been around, it's been in the mix, and it's in every continent going all the way back. What's new with Greece and Rome, which is generative of slavery, is slavery becomes structurally foundational to the economy. That hadn't Mm. happened before, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Slavery had been quite small in number and generally didn't have an economic function, right? Now, here's how I think people thought about freedom. There was such a thing as slaves. You definitely didn't want to be a slave. You know, you would be horrified by the thought that your children would be slaves. And to the extent that, like, a you know, there's a double negation there, you would recognise, yeah, if someone said, is it good that you're not a slave? Of course. That's quite different from it being a social value. And so here's the metaphor. In today's society, we don't want to be homeless. Mm-hmm. We would be horrified by the thought that our children would be homeless. And if someone said, is not being homeless a good thing? Mm-hmm. You'd say, yeah, absolutely. That's very different from a commitment to not having the institution of homelessness. A lot of people would say being homeless is a bad thing, but if someone said, should we just like house all of them with tax money? They'd say, of course not. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Similarly to the ancient world, do you want to be a slave? Of course not. So should we abolish slavery? What are you talking about? Like, who'd mm-hmm. who'd be the temple prostitutes then? You know what I mean? Um, and we would never. It would sound absolutely bizarre to us to say the point of our society is to be non-homeless. Give me non-homelessness mm-hmm. or give me death. 
it would just sound like, what are you talking about? Like, mm -hmm. being non-homeless is a desirable state, but it's not a social value. It's not something you fight wars for or build political systems around. It would mm -hmm. seem perverse, in fact, to do that. I think that's how most people in human history would have seen freedom. It just wouldn't really have occurred to them. Yes, we don't want to be slaves, mm -hmm. but the idea that not being a slave, that, like, double negation... That, like, that in itself points the way to a way of living, a way of feeling, a way of organising our political communities, I think would have seemed as wild to them as the idea to us that not being homeless is mm -hmm. a way of doing those things. Mm -hmm. Interesting. As we're talking through this kind of social death stuff, and there's, you know, folks like um, Afro-pessimists, some of the Afro-pessimists will argue mm -hmm. that, like, social death is a kind of permanent state that um, certain individuals are unable to escape from. And then, like, adding on the sort of percentages that you gave earlier about how most of us don't feel free, I guess I'm led to wonder, do you think there's, and this is a very open question, right, do you, the, a degree to which, like, our desire for freedom cannot ever actually be met by reality, political or otherwise? No, I think... Um... I think it's very easy to imagine reforms that would get um, it to two-thirds feel free as opposed to a third. Um, mm. I think, like, very basic autonomy stuff, like having control over your career, um, mm -hmm. having more power in the workplace, um, really basic stuff like that, um, drives a lot of it. I think just a greater... Um, equality of both outcome and opportunity like just just bread and basic progressive liberal or sort of social democratic stuff i think would go a long long way i think if you ask people like what are some instances of unfreedom you'll get some from a left-wing point of view you'll get some very obvious replies i mm -hmm. also don't think to take the case of afro-pessimism um i don't think it's the case that these sorts of concepts are like pandora's boxes I don't think mm -hmm. it's the case that, like, um, a certain thing gets into the world and then you just can't get it out again because we have so many examples of us doing just that. So even to take the case of um, mm -hmm. freedom, it's not the case that they invented something called slavery that, through a complicated process, led to freedom and we've been stuck with both ever since because there were different categories they had that we, we no longer do. So there used to be something called freed persons, which are mm -hmm. not the same as free men. There's free men and there's freed persons. And hmm. these are completely different social categories, and you treat them very differently. And the types of, like, to use your previous language, membership of the moral community that they would afford you are completely different. And yet mm -hmm. that distinction makes no sense at all to us anymore. And hmm. freedom has, and powerlessness have changed drastically. Um, there's some things, like the ancients to talk about slavery today and Afro-pessimism, the ancients didn't have a conception of race. Of mm -hmm. all the texts we have in the ancient world, they never once talk about someone's skin colour. It just wasn't something they really paid attention to. They had other forms of domination and exclusion, certainly. But that wasn't one of them. They didn't think about sexual orientation the way we do. I mean, so there, are, there are mentions are... of skin colour, but I think it would be fair to say they don't have a formalised conception of it like we do. Right, they have no. a, a much more informal understanding of its relationship to identity and things like that. In the Roman case, I mean, in some there's there's some bits like there's a passage that that talks about Achilles' hair color that people get worked up about. And yeah. like, was it blonde or brown? But yeah, it's it's really just not there 
in the modern sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point being that these things change and they change so much. And it seems to me, I think where the Afro-pessimist urge and it comes from is it's, it, it's to push back against a sort of triumphalist, mm-hmm. Whiggish view of history in which look at all we've accomplished. People right. want to stress, look at how much historic residual there is, which is valid. But the idea that, that like these things get into the world and then can just never be changed, these things mm-hmm. change all the time. Mm-hmm. And the mental frameworks we assess the world with in different ages are radically divergent. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that it'll get better. They could equally get worse. Mm-hmm. And I, I recently did a piece on this paradox of progress kind of stuff where it's like, it does feel to me that things progress. And yet the other hand, it feels like they don't to some extent. Let's talk about this in terms of America. I know you're back over in the UK mm. now, but you spent some time here, right? It, yeah. it always feels to me and more and more so these days that like America has a weird mixed relationship with freedom that it's sort of mm. in many ways the individualist account of freedom is like at the very core of the american self-image but we also constantly are like engaging in from policy down to personal level activities that like seem to make us less free and it seems related to our ambivalence as a culture around this idea of liberalism and i'm curious how do you experience the american zeitgeist's uh, approach to freedom does it seem similarly sort of disjointed to you um it's a huge question um perhaps just to start with we could either go with like we're talking about like contemporary american politics yeah. here mm-hmm. um on the left or the right to <laughs> s- start me off on a track here yeah well let's let's say i, I think i find it to be more incoherent on the right, though I won't say that the left is totally deprived of incoherencies here. Okay, so I take a little bit of a divergent view here in that I believe the way the political right articulates this is foundationally coherent. Hmm. Um, It just appears as wildly incoherent when viewed from the perspective of contemporary progressive liberalism when you look at it through our categories and concepts and you assume that when they use words they mean the same as the things that we mean mm-hmm. then it's it's wildly incoherent um but they, they're not using the words to mean those things so concretely um mm-hmm. it seems from the liberal point of view as if there is a radical divergence on the american right a radical inconsistency between its libertarian and authoritarian moments right on the mm-hmm. one hand you can have people to take the case of um anti-vaxxers or anti-maskers or so on who really seem to prize individual liberty and individual autonomy to the exclusion of really literally anything else right Mm -hmm. and you can say okay that's a coherent point of view it's pure libertarianism all the way down you just can't fuck with another person even for the social good Mm -hmm. um on the other hand the political right can be really authoritarian when it comes to say um um the the response to black lives matter protests trump was saying just send in the army and crack some skulls um well that's a pretty big infringement on bodily autonomy but they loved that mm-hmm. um so is that incoherent no it's only incoherent if you assume that the same protections should apply to all people equally it's only mm-hmm. 
it's only incoherent if you assume that different groups within society should have the same amount of freedom. That's something liberals assume. Conservatives don't assume that. To their mm-hmm. credit, they've never pretended to believe in that. And everything they do and say speaks to the fact that they don't believe in that. A, a really telling example of this was there was this um, woman who got arrested as part of the um, the capital insurrection. Um, mm-hmm. And when she was getting arrested, she she said really legitimately like, upset and offended and kind of like not getting it why are you arresting me you're Mm -hmm. here to arrest antifa and black lives matter not me why are you arresting me Mm -hmm. um or another example i always give greg abbott the governor of texas said of covid restrictions we're not going to put any small business owners in prison for breaking the law Mm-hmm. Prisons are for criminals, not small business owners. Well, that doesn't make any sense to a liberal, <laughs> does it? Because like, right. if you break the law, you're definitionally a criminal, whether you're a small business owner or not. But it's not about liberals judge people by actions. We're not in that world. We're judging categories of persons. Business owners, Trump supporters, these are categories of persons whom the coercive powers of the state are there to protect against other categories of persons, criminals, read black people, who yeah. the law is there to violently repress. That's a coherent ideal of freedom. It's coherent. Uh, yes, it's not no, morally right. praiseworthy, but it's coherent. I guess it depends on what we mean by coherent, right? I think if it can't hold up to scrutiny of like, well, what about this small business owner who's clearly also a criminal? Like, can we really say that it's coherent just because they're using these categories, but they're using them in such like ham handed ways that they're going to obviously contradict themselves under any kind of pressure? Well, criminal doesn't mean commit criminal acts. You can Mm -hmm. break the law and not be a criminal. Criminal Uh is a category of persons for whom criminality is an innate property that they have. Uh Uh-huh. And so you think that like conservatives buy into a very specific sort of metaphysics of individuals that that again i guess that's kind of the social death idea right but a criminal is one category of social death there right yeah and when you hear the response to like you know oh um i remember a black lives a, a video a while ago i don't have a source but of a black lives matter person trying to talk to a crowd that had a lot of you know mm-hmm. right wingers in it and they said you know look you know, we're, they tried to do the libertarian thing, right? They tried mm-hmm. to say, look, we share very similar values. You're saying you want your freedom respected. We're saying that person who just sh- got shot by the police, they should have their freedom respected. So mm-hmm. that's a completely coherent argument within the liberal framework, right? Or within the libertarian framework. And the crowd shouts back, but that was a criminal. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't know what case was being referred to, but they knew it was a criminal. And whether or not that person was a criminal was independent of the fact that they'd committed a crime. So you can call that metaphysics, I guess it is. But, like, what is racism, right? Mm -hmm. If not Mm -hmm. that, the assumption of sort of inherent attributes of these different groups. And, of course, our use of these labels like criminal or small business owner Mm -hmm. correlates very, very tightly with racial identity. Um, yeah. I don't. I don't think people are. You know. I think if you asked them to define terms, they mm-hmm. wouldn't define them in exactly the way I'm doing it. But actually, most of us, most of the time, can't define the words that we use. But we use right. them in consistent and predictable patterns. And this is the way these terms are used. 
No, I, I think there's something to what you're saying here. I'm not totally opposed to this idea. For example, you know, I think there's something, this weird game in America right now where everybody wants to claim the mantle of small L liberal, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm in, you know, I have the liberal ideals, but I'm not a liberal, right? Like mm. being a liberal is still like a slur, even though everybody wants to be seen as the defender of liberalism. And I think that maybe something is something to that where like the right wing has categorized liberal as a category that has a bunch of features that have nothing to do right with, you know, whether or not you want to resist government overreach or something like that. Do you see them as being sort of related? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this move people do where they say like, I'm a classical liberal. You have to like mm -hmm. interpret that in a sort of rhetorical ideological sense where people are claiming a particular timeline as their own to add legitimacy to their views, and that's something all political ideologies do. The idea that contemporary liberalism has lost its way and we need to sort of go back to quote-unquote real liberalism, that's mm -hmm. actually something that goes back almost 200 years. You can hear Herbert Spencer mm -hmm. um, saying stuff like that. I think when it comes to... Um, the right's use of um, classically liberal, or let's say even libertarian language mm -hmm. and concepts. Um, I think this is perhaps one sense in which the right can be a little misleading, is it can sound like they're putting forward what their absolute foundational values are, is mm -hmm. a sort of libertarian-y, sort of free market-y type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not their absolute foundational values. And you can see that it's not in the way that the, that the minute a company decides to do some diversity and inclusion trainings, that free market thing goes out the window, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a useful set of rhetorics for expressing in some, but not all scenarios, what the foundational values really are, which is a belief in the extra human origin of the social structure, a belief in um, the, the position of certain groups within that structure, um, the preservation of, or the restoration even, of valuable social norms like traditional mm -hmm. marriage or traditional gender roles, and the necessity of discrimination to prevent those norms from being corroded. Now, talking about free markets and individual rights, can be a useful rhetoric for the maintenance or restoration mm -hmm. of particular social norms and orders. And it is used as such because it's a rhetoric that the left, in theory, can, can um, respect. Mm -hmm. it, it's almost like being ideologically bilingual. It's like, you know, you're, you're Chinese, but you'll learn to speak English because that's the language of trade and commerce. You're foundationally a conservative, but you'll learn to sort of speak classical liberal libertarian because that's like our ideological linga franca. It's, a, it's an ideological mm -hmm. language everyone can participate in, but it's not core or foundational to the contemporary conservative project. It's structurally adjacent to it. I wonder if there's also something to like as society has generally in a lot of ways adopted especially on the social side of things a kind of more progressive view about the various you know familial things that you're describing there right it became much more functional for conservatives to fall back on this kind of liberal idea of leave me alone and let me live my own lifestyle mm -hmm. because they feel like they are beset by a culture that is trying to 
update their lifestyle in this way. Uh, to tie something else into this and, mm -hmm. and something back to the book as well, you, you keep talking about libertarian rhetoric. One example that I think stands out to me is the distinction between positive and negative conceptions of liberty, mm -hmm. which is often brought up by libertarians. And I think ties to this idea that like, uh, I actually used a, a quote from Zizek a little while ago for an intro where it's basically that like liber liberalism has become the liberalism of leave me alone, right? It's a mm -hmm. very negative kind of liberalism. I'm curious, do you think, I mean, A, do you think that that sort of historical analysis has anything to it? And what do you think about that distinction between positive and negative conceptions of liberty? Do you think it, yeah. it carries weight or collapses under pressure? So first of all, I think we'd want to distinguish between people who are who sort of claim the mantle of liberals in this sort of Dave Rubin way of sort of saying I'm a classical liberal, but I I reject um, yeah the, the contemporary progressive liberalism that's sort of gone mm -hmm. too far. They certainly use a negative ish conception of freedom. Um, but as I've noted, it's a negative-ish conception of freedom that's quite tightly constrained in its operation to them and their own group and people like them. It's not a negative conception of freedom that is extended to, like I say, um, groups within society that are seen as subversive or internal enemies. Mm -hmm. um, so you do have a sort of, within the in-group, you have a negative conception of freedom. With that said, um, if you look at just like the actual liberals, you know, like, mm -hmm. people who identify as liberal in our political system, so, like, anyone from, like, Joe Biden to um, the sort of leftward edge of the party until you get to the people who start calling themselves socialists. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about freedom a whole lot, but to the extent that they do, or to the extent that they, like, implicitly reference it, that's a sort of hybrid notion, I would say, bit of positive, mm -hmm. bit of negative. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even a bit of like Republican sometimes I feel like is coming out in the modern Democratic Party a little bit. Um, with respect to positive and negative, um, I've got a whole episode on this, so I'll do it really quickly. I'm a bit mm -hmm. of a critic of that distinction. And I, uh, so just sorry for people who don't know, negative liberty, um, at least according to Asaya Berlin, who writes the seminal essay on this, negative liberty is not being interfered with by another person being left alone, in other words. Positive liberty is pursuing some sort of good or self-realization or thing you want or something like that. Um, I think it depends what you want to do with that distinction. If you want to use that distinction as a typology to sort of separate out and say, okay, well, you know, there's lots of different types of freedom, but we can sort of generally sort them into these two buckets. Um, it won't do that. Um, mm -hmm. Most types of freedom that we use in the world today, we just did the American left and the American right. Actually, neither of those neatly sort into either positive or negative. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a sort of negative flair to the rights, but there's actually features of it that are quite non-negative in terms of its universalizability, mm -hmm. as it talks about. And then, like I said, the left, I would say, to the extent that there's a conception of freedom implicit in Joe Biden, it's a hybrid positive-negative. And mm -hmm. if you go back in the history of political thought, most thinkers don't easily categorize as one or the other. John Stuart Mill has both negative and positive conceptions. So does Hegel. So does Marx, in fact, to the extent that he talks about freedom. Even someone like Hobbes, um, people like Nancy Hirschman have argued, it's definitely more on the negative side 
but there mm-hmm. are positive elements within that. So positive-negative just isn't a very good typology. Um, what it is perhaps useful on is looking at your roots, your sourcing for freedom. What mm-hmm. assumptions about human nature are you leaning on, you know, in order to... Because to, freedom is articulating a vision about human flourishing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's saying when power is managed in certain ways, human beings will flourish, and you kind of have to fill in the blanks. Um, now, what you assume about human beings will matter a lot, and so you can think of positive and negative as like a set of inputs, a set of assumptions about human nature on which mm-hmm. we can draw. On the one hand, no one likes being told what to do. On the other hand, um, we all, I think, can recognise that choice-making is an act that occurs within communities and with a wide variety of inputs. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those are common sense, the socially situated nature of choice and the idea of sort of get out of my face, right? And the extent mm-hmm. you give one of those weight over the other will affect what you have. But to try and divide theories up by that, you won't really get anywhere because both in the real world and in philosophy, almost everyone is a bit of both. I think that's right. I, I wonder if the the like percentages have changed some in the sense that like the history of liberalism has been one where the first attempt was to focus more, not exclusively, but focus more on the sort of negative getting people left alone. And then there was this kind of realization that that alone wasn't going to bring about the kind of fairness that we wanted. And so that we've moved to more of this, we need to ensure freedom for others kind of approach to liberalism. I'm not sure. I would complicate yeah. the shit out of that historical narrative. <laughs> fair enough. Um, that's perfectly because, fair. Like, so let's, let's go to like Locke, which is like your mm-hmm. foundational proto-liberalism. That has both positive and negative components in it, right? Mm-hmm. You get to John Stuart Mill, right, which has a very strong articulation of negative limits on the individual, but also has a very strong conception of individual self-development, social mm-hmm. progress, which is to say what you're using that freedom for. It's not a teleological conception of what you'd be using freedom for in in the case of like green or a sort of idealist perfectionist liberalism. Mm -hmm. And as that matures into thinkers like Hobson and Hobhouse, you have aggressively positive visions. Um, Like Hobhouse thinks that the only reason we value individual rights is because they're useful and productive towards an organic social whole, which is Mm -hmm. not at all how modern liberals think about it. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to FDR and the Beveridge Report and the NHS and the welfare state, freedom is the, 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 you'd think it would be welfare or equality, it's not, it's freedom is the value that um, the creation of the welfare state is anchored to. It's freedom Hmm. from want, freedom from ignorance, freedom from poverty. Um, So this is, this is not, even remotely a negative conception. It might be limited by negative conceptions in some ways, but this is a this is a robust capital P progressive mm-hmm. positive conception of freedom here. Then of course, and I would say you only really get the sort of purest negative conceptions of freedom. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like almost like modern biblical literalism feels like something that has gone back 2,000 years. It actually barely predates the last hundred. Right. Um, the modern libertarian thing where you get 
Hayek and Friedman, and that eventually finds its political institutional manifestation in the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions. That's later mm-hmm. to the game. And when you read early Hayek, i.e. like interwar Hayek, he's just bemoaning the fact that like everyone when they talk about freedom means something different to the real definition or what he thinks is the real definition. Mm-hmm. And now we're living in a world so heavily built by the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions. that In the case of a couple of generations, that conception of freedom that built the welfare state has just dissolved from from our consciousness. Um, Hmm. We think about those as socialist projects in the name of equality, which they also were. It was a coalition. Um, And it feels like because everything now is so permeated by a sort of libertarian conception of freedom, quite an individual atomate... atomized conception, a conception that has a very thin definition of human nature behind it as just egotistical, rational want fulfillment stripped of sociability or glucosity or anything like that. It can sort of feel like that's that's been the concept, you know, from, from Locke to now, um, that's just been the dominant conception. It's only more recently we have things like social justice movement saying actually hang on we need a more sort of positive way of thinking about this hmm. um but the two the, the the well the two there have been at least two there have been multiple different ideas that have been competing for dominance within liberalism from the very beginning mm-hmm. and which one is on top changes from era to era and now we're in an era where the more libertarian version is on top, but that's changed and changed again throughout. So, like I say, I would complicate the shit out Fair of that narrative. So, like, yeah. That's why I brought you on to complicate things. Yeah. So, let me, before we run out of time here, ask a little bit about the activism part of the mm. book, because you'll talk about sort of the role of freedom in activism, and we can try to get back down onto some concrete examples here, because in that area, you talk about the hard choices that activists sometimes have to make between equality and freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, could you give like a concrete example of what you see as one of the hardest versions of this trade-off between equality and freedom? And how do you personally come down on that difficult choice? Yeah. Um, so in the Peter Tatchell chapter, who for you American listeners, he's probably the leading or you know, one of the leading gay rights campaigners in the UK. And he's been doing it for, God knows, like 50 years or something now. Um, gay rights or sort of movements for sort of advancement and social acceptance of LGBTQIA people, however you want to say that. Um, historically in the UK, and to some degree in the US as well, used to talk a lot about liberation. Now Mm -hmm. they almost exclusively talk about equality. So marriage equality, for instance, is a good example of that. Um, Both of these are good. I'm not saying either are bad. It does Mm -hmm. reflect a change in emphasis and probably a scaling back of ambitions. Because Mm. what someone like Peter Tatchell would say, who's more on the liberation side, is there's a lot of areas in society where gay people having equality with straight people would still be a pretty sad outcome. So the example he gives is if, you know, as a gay man, I was absolutely never taught in school in sex education about like how to have gay sex. It's just like not something you get. But he said, if I'd have had just as good sex education as mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. straight kids do, I'd still have had a pretty bad sex education. <laughs> That's fair. 
Um, and, you know, um, marriage is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Marriage equality is, I think Thatcher would say marriage equality is a good thing, but marriage is also a very limiting construct that has its roots in patriarchy and assumptions about gender roles. And actually, what what if we just redesigned the thing so that it was much more open-ended, and if people, be they romantic partners, sexual partners, or just friends, wanted to sort of form a relationship, there could just almost be like a checklist of rights and responsibilities that each couple could customise on their own. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why does it have to be this one size fits all thing? So the liberation view would say, let's actually think about like, is this one size fits all thing we call marriage the right answer for everyone? Or could we like liberalize up the space such that people have more choices and more freedom? And of mm-hmm. course, that freedom should apply equally to gay and straight people. Or is the goal for simply gay people to have access to the thing that straight people have had? all along. Now, the counter-argument to that, and it's not uncompelling, is that liberation is too much in the sense that I'm talking about. You're you're Mm. going for a total transformation of society, and most people, even most gay people, don't want that. Mm -hmm. Most people don't want to transform society. They want to get by, and they want to, like, not have other people dicking them over too much in the process. And equality is realisable, you know? Like, we we don't want people looking on my social media, finding out I'm gay, and not hiring me for a job, or not giving me that promotion. That's a reform that you can get, mm-hmm. you know, and you can put these concrete steps rolling out. And I just, my, where I come down on is, I think that's really hard. That That is, there is a trade-off to be had there. Mm-hmm. Do you want to articulate a more radical vision um, that has failed historically, you know, in mm-hmm. sort of... Mm-hmm. Real liberal heydays of the sixties and seventies. I don't think anyone would think those movements got everything that they wanted. Yeah. Um, um, or do you do you go for an overarching vision that is more limited, that seeks participation within a system that you still find to be badly designed while forfeiting your right to talk about how badly designed it is, mm-hmm. but in a way that will be much more realizable, much more easily accepted. You know, I don't I don't think there's a really easy answer to that, to just mm-hmm. say one side is right, I think. And I think Thatchell would say, that's hard, mate. Like, mm-hmm. I think he still leads more towards the liberation side, and I think I would too, but I've worked for marriage equality, and I called it marriage equality, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having done that, you know? It actually, it makes me think of the difference between first and second wave feminism. So I was reading about that some recently and like, you know, the first wave feminists tend to be in favor of education for women so that they can serve their sort of separate feminine role. They're not there mm-hmm. to sort of overturn the idea of sex differences necessarily, but rather to say that everybody should be equal in, in being given the opportunity to fulfill their particular, mm-hmm. you know, natural role in society, whereas you have you know, second wave coming along and, and, you know, criticizing the very idea of the feminine or, or, or sort of un, um, deconstructing these uh, social ideas. And yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say there's trade-offs, right? And that like, mm. if you were, you know, especially the, um, I was reading about like a, a first wave black 
feminist who was trying to do like education for black women in like newly freed areas of America. Right. Like um, it's understandable why you might frame those arguments in such a way where they don't seem too revolutionary because you're already making a big ask. And of course, like there's endless debates of incrementalism versus radical change. Um, so before we run out of time here, I've been very patient, I feel like, and I haven't asked you about moral luck once this whole time. Oh, okay. uh, that was what we talked about last time I was on your show, actually. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm interested, um, do you, is there anything to the idea of luck that has influenced your thinking about freedom? Do you, have, do you ponder the ways in which luck constrains our, our freedom or sense of freedom? Um, I think when you ask the question, a lot mm-hmm. of people will put it through that lens. To what mm-hmm. extent it, are you free? People will often think about it through the sort of, am I really in control of my own actions? Um, I don't. Let me just talk talk through through my perspective. And I'll, I'm actually going to start with equality rather mm-hmm. than freedom, but I'm going to work it back to freedom. I think a lot of thinking on the left, and I mean in... in actual political discourse as well, sees Mm -hmm. the problem of inequality or the questions raised by inequality or poverty as questions of compensating people for bad luck, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I think we're still wedded to a deserving, undeserving poor framework. You'll have people, even like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, will say stuff like, no one who works hard or works full time should have to live in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, Rather than just no well, one should ever live in poverty. Yeah, why is that tied to your inclination or ability to participate in a contemporary capitalist mm-hmm. labor market, right? Um, but if you just strip away all of that, which is a move I think we would both make, right? Then what is the point of equality why is that a moral good and i'd say there's certain other goods that Mm -hmm. come along for the ride in a more equal society that stand completely independent of um whether or not there's a sense that you've earned those goods so Mm -hmm. i think we have pretty strong reasons to believe now that societies that are more equal economically, more equal racially, um, have better democratic functioning. You, mm-hmm. the, the democracy is more able, sort of collective choice is more able to be meaningfully practiced in societies um, that don't have extreme wealth inequality or sort of caste hierarchies with respect to race or another social variable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having greater equality also strips down, not eliminates, but strips down your um risk of having people in relations of domination mm-hmm. like it's very easy if there's very rich and very poor or forms of status hierarchy for people to really be subject to arbitrary and unaccountable power because the rich can do whatever they want and the poor lack protections insofar as they lack active power to really defend themselves against abuses and finally um equality will bring with it greater personal autonomy like, mm-hmm. I think the, the increase in someone's ability to make their own life choices, to pursue a new career or go back to school if that's what they want to, to marry who they want to, to decide to have a family or not, just 
just very, very everyday choices, your ability to really decide them for themselves will be so drastically improved by taking someone from the lowest quadrant to the second lowest quadrant, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so if you, su- if you sum all that up, I've identified three goods there. Autonomy individually, autonomy collectively, and non-domination that come along for the ride when you mm-hmm. have a more equal society. And if you'd put a label to those three goods, it would be freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very... Just cutty, cutty, cutter. I'm not doing anything fancy with my conception of freedom there. I'm just highlighting some things that the the vast majority of people would factor into their thinking as Mm -hmm. to whether or not they're free or not. I'm not doing some like flash conceptual work. Um, I'm just saying these are sort of goods that we have that are available to us that in no way depend upon Mm -hmm. um, us ultimately deserving or not deserving them or ultimately being the authors of our actions or not so mm-hmm. so that's a bit long that's how i get to freedom in the absence of dessert and actually that's so much easier and simpler and better and our <laughs> thinking is really only confused by trying to sort in and out um people who who made choices in, in a gentle sense that really qualifies them for membership of that community and yeah. especially when you consider historically how the, the, the deserving and undeserving poor has always been filtered through constructs of racial and class discrimination and whatever else right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um there's just a lot of historical baggage to trying to make those distinctions they're not conceptually clear i don't think they stand up on their own terms and it just clears out the driftwood to have a common sense, not sophisticated vision of freedom that is what people are telling us they want. They want to make their own choices in life. They want to collectively be able to make their own choices and they don't want to feel like they're under the thumb of anybody else. Mm-hmm. And like, it's easier to like think about having that and why we would want it in the absence of some sort of real hardline libertarian conception of free will. So that's how I square that seeming contradiction um, mm-hmm. between the lack of free will and the, the the meaningfulness of having freedom. I'm not sure that's quite what your question was asking, but that's how I square that seeming contradiction. Yeah, and I think they're absolutely squareable in the sense that, like, you know, what I think you got out there that, that is really close to my concerns here is this idea that the luck-based approach gives us a way to take you know clear out all of that detritus around who deserves what and such and just say you know no one really deserves to suffer no one really deserves to be in poverty and so um and and then like to me the language of of reducing inequality and increasing freedom is the language of reducing bad luck for people so that they can have room in their lives for for better luck and for human flourishing in these kinds of ways um so yeah i think you did sort of get at a lot of sort of what I'm interested about um, taking luck seriously on the left when we're doing our work in social progress. Or or to give you another example, um, Mm -hmm. property rights. Property rights are something that make a lot of people on the left uncomfortable and understandably. But I would say property rights should be a part of our schema of rights. Not Mm -hmm. the most important part, not the only part. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say in the service of individual autonomy and non-domination, for the sake of non-domination, it is good to have resources that mm-hmm. you have exclusive control over and mm-hmm. that you have predictability and stability. In other words, you, you know that you'll have them tomorrow, right? right? 
for the purposes of, like I say, being able to defend yourself against, say, a, an abusive employer, having some resources to know that I'll be able to survive on my own is valuable. They're mm. also valuable for autonomy. I decide how I want to live my life. So of the sort of resources that are congruent with other people having those resources, I want a computer or a bread maker or a library and I want to have exclusive control over that and mm-hmm. confidence that that exclusive control will continue. I can see how property rights serve autonomy. Yes, yeah. and they also I think promote pro-social behavior, right? If you feel more comfortable that you're going to have enough to live on and retire on, it's easier for you to be giving to charity, right? And And like paying into that social safety net if you trust that the social safety net might be there if you ever need it in the future um so yeah. we're, we're way but, but over time nothing here. nothing yeah. about that explanation requires mm-hmm. you to believe that you earned that money in some ways right. none of it is about how you got the money right it's just benefits of having a system of individual exclusive control mm-hmm. but you can arrive at that through anything it doesn't you don't have to do this labor mixing justice and transfer thing mm-hmm. it's better if you don't it's just like that's like a nice social construct to have anyway Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I have to torture you here in a second. Before we do that, oh, I always God. like to wrap up this part by asking folks, you know, other than your book, which everybody should pick up, mm. are there resources that you found especially valuable, especially for folks who like can't get too far into the weeds, but want to learn a little bit more about sort of where you've come from on freedom, any resources that you would direct them towards? Yeah, so each chapter in my book, I do um, uh, uh, recommended um, mm. reading at mm-hmm. the end of it. Um, well, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, let me, let me try and pick a few. Um, so, in terms of philosophy, David Miller, who I've had on the podcast, has a collection of articles on freedom, which does, like, the Isaiah Berlin thing and uh, a few different others. But just, like, the, 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 the quite short readings on the philosophy of it. So he's got a collection, which I think is just called Freedom. Um if you want to do philosophy, Philip Pettit has quite a nice summary of his work called Just Freedom, which is like quite mm-hmm. a nice guide. Um, in terms of US politics, which we've been doing a bit, um, Zephyr Teachow, who I have in the book, has a couple um, on political corruption, which ties back to a lot of these issues quite closely that I think is good. If you're up for a bit of a longer read, it's a bit more challenging, but you don't need to be a specialist. Orlando Patterson's Freedom mm-hmm. in the Making of Western Culture is an absolute classic. But um, you got to read Slavery and Social Death first, right? I don't think you have to. <laughs> I'm kidding, because you mentioned I, earlier that you read in order, but yes. I think it makes sense to read them in order, but I, mm-hmm. I read Freedom and I read Freedom first and Slavery second, and Slavery was almost became like a prequel. <laughs> I read it. Um, Michael Frieden, who I have um, an exclusive chapter with in the book, his work is really hard to get into, but he has two very short introductions. You know, these these ones like the 100-page books, very sure. short introductions to liberalism, one on liberalism and one on ideology. So I don't know. Th- th- I do recommend reading for all of this in the book, but those would be a few to get to get started on. Okay, great. And, well, and, you've been by my book, by my book. Yeah, of course. Like, then you can, course. then you'll have all of the lists, right? So it'll be much yeah. easier. All right. Well, you've yeah. been great. So I feel bad that I have to torture you now. So this okay. is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Okay. So here's what's going to sure happen. Coming here. Yeah, yeah, yeah you weren't here for this last time. This came about after your last appearance, uh, which is great. I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? 
Those are your only options. You don't get to define okay. what the word real means. You don't get to oh. hedge. Okay. Okay. It's real or not real. All right. All right. Straight off the cuff. Let's go. You ready? Yep. Okay. So let me just first check. Is anything real? Yes, that things are real. Okay, great. Let's find out which things are real. So, the external world, real or not real? Real. Mm, colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Real. <laughs> Morality? Real. Rights? Not real. Mm. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Not real. Mm. Holes. These, like are completely hole. off. These are completely off the cuff, by the yeah, way. Yeah, so that's, that's the way they work. Don't try to make any coherence of this. Anyway. <laughs> Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Real. Beauty? Real. Love? Real. Causality? Real. And finally, time? Time's real. I think to be consistent, I have to change fictional characters and God back to real. And oh, it's yeah. just real across the board. I think to be consistent, I have to do that. But uh, fuck. But it's not about consistency, is it? As you were mentioning halfway through. Yep. <laughs> I always think it's so funny because people are like, this is totally off the cuff and incoherent, but I desperately want it to be consistent. So I'm going to try to make it so. <laughs> yeah. I basically said real to almost everything. Though. Yes, you ended up in the realist camp, which is very funny to me. Um, stuff, so... is, stuff is real. Even if it's just in your head, it's real. <laughs> Things are real, man. That's that's a good one from Toby. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so thanks for so much for coming on. Do you want to let folks know one more time where they can find you, Twitter handles, stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Cheers, mate. Um, so um, I have a podcast called The Political Philosophy Podcast, uh, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Links to everything are... There, my Twitter handle is PolPhilPod, and the book is What is Freedom? Um, that's out. It's available to pre-order, and I think it'll be out. I'm not sure when you're putting this out, but a couple of weeks from recording. So yeah, mm -hmm. just for having me on. Yeah, and get those pre-orders in so that it gets on the Amazon bestseller or whatever nonsense. So yeah, thanks so much, Toby. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no. Cheers, man. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patron, a good dog covered in cats and having a great time. And as always, thanks to our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Ooh, I can change my name to something, Dude, Fix the Vote, Create Voting Districts in Covina, California, Fight for Democracy and End the Theocracy. 
Chad T and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Filmed Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, free or not, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.